So, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, going out in the world and how we do that in this messy, difficult, uh, problematic period that we're in, a time of anxiety, time of uh, great challenge, and how easy it is for us to feel helpless, I can't do anything, Uh, I can't make a difference. I just have to put up with things and watch the TV and feel despaired and give up. Um, So we all have a compassionate heart. But it's a compassionate heart in a messy world. And I think we need to um, really understand the gifts of the Dharma that help us to solve that problem. How we go out in the world and make change. So I can say, for example, in the Middle East, uh, I've been doing years and years of peace work with Israelis and Palestinians. And it's extraordinary, unbelievable, how easy it is to make peace, if you want. And the Palestinians would say, all I want is actually for Israelis to come and have a cup of coffee with me and we can solve our problems. But of course, nobody does come. And we did uh, workshops for 48 hours with Palestinians and Israelis, uh, month after month after month, bringing Israelis to the Palestinian territories. And basically, a huge jump was made between a place of labeling Palestinian, terrorist, Arab, their enemy, Israeli, soldier, occupier, and so on and so on. So labeling, but as soon as we brought the two together, especially in one-to-one dialogue, heart-to-heart dialogue, and especially a little bit structured according to the Dharma. And according to the Dharma, it was structured that each, in the dyads, in the dialogue, each person just explained the difficulties of their daily life to the other. And peace was made. But how do we deal with a situation that a hundred years there's been conflict and still going on, and worse now than ever before? So do we give up? And do we say, well, we didn't do that much. Uh, It doesn't work. So that's the challenge, and that's what I want to address this evening, that exact challenge, because it's not just in Israel, it's here and everywhere, especially today. So the first thing I want to say is that awareness, mindfulness, presence is not just a uh, Dharma tool to make us feel more um, connected and peaceful Uh, and present in our life. It's actually a power. It's a real power. And we can look at it like that. And the the Buddha said in one of his first talks, those people that are able to turn the gaze instead of out there, what I need, what I have to do, what I like, what I don't like, what the challenge is, coping with things, getting things better and so on. Turn the view to this being here, not at all easy, but it's hugely powerful. He called it the lion's roar, the roar of the lion. And those people that 
were able to do it. He called them Brahmins, kings. So, we, when we practice mindful awareness, we're actually developing a power. It's not just a power of presence. It's also a power to change the way our mind works. So that instead of cacophony of thought and noise, it's music in our mind. And the music allows us to do things and to, to, be, uh, to be in control of our minds. And just think, um, the voices of frustration, when we want to go out and make change in the world, and we think, I, can't, I don't know how to do it, it's all too difficult. It's a vo- voice of frustration. Who says it's difficult? The voice of frustration, the, the, the language of frustration says so. Or, it's not enough what I can do. I need to do more. Or, I have expectations. Or, I'm measuring what I can do in the world. I can make a small change in my uh, school of my kids. But actually, politics and so on, no, 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 I can't get there. Or, um, I can't speak to people who don't agree with me. I don't know how to do that. So, measuring outcomes... I succeed or don't succeed, if we look at that, those voices with mindfulness, we will see they're just voices that actually pull out the carpet from under our feet. And they're not true. They're comments. And that's the cacophony. So the music will say, yes, there are these comments of success and failure, but actually, when I look at my mind, I can feel I'm a bigger person. Because I can hold the content of my mind. And I'm bigger than those thoughts in the mind. So they're stories that come and go. They're not the truth. So I think we need to see one aspect that's really important in uh, awareness and mindfulness practice is to sort of make friends with our need to control things, to measure things, to succeed, to judge ourselves or not judge ourselves, to make friends with those voices and feel ourselves free. One of the Palestinian women that was um, founding the project we did, with the, uh, the, the dialogue project that I talked about, um, she spent 10 years uh, in an Israeli prison. And... Um, uh, and when I met her, she's, she was hugely uh, impressive. Palestinian mother, but really impressive, like a queen. And I said, you know, how, did you, how did you develop that inner power? She said, I spent ten years making sure that there wasn't one grain of hate or anger in my heart for anybody. And you can feel the power in her that allowed her after that to be a peacemaker in her community. So um, we really need to um, expose the um, thoughts that undo our powers. Let them go. Don't believe them. 
expose our tendency to shut down, shut off, anesthesia, escape. I can't deal with it. I just want to go on holiday. I can't deal with Trump. I have to. Yeah, I, I can't deal with Netanyahu. Just spare me. I'm going off to Greek island. Okay, it doesn't matter. Go to Greek island. <laughs> it's not a problem. But um, just we need to see all those voices because they're voices of dukkha, of uh, pain, and they undo the power. But once we see them as thoughts in the mind, and we, then we can let them go and we are bigger than them and we don't need to believe them. So another aspect of the Dharma, which I would say is a power that help us to go out in the world and, and make change, is um, the final words of the Buddha. And he said, be an island to yourself. And it's a lovely image. What he meant by that image is autonomy. And there are other texts, Buddhist texts, in which he really expressed that we need to stand steady and not be swept away by the group mind, by other people, by what everybody says, by texts that we all should believe. Uh, we need to stand steady. And we do that when we practice mindfulness anyway. The Buddha said, how do we stand steady like an island and the next piece in that text is by being aware of our body being aware of our breath being aware of uh, liking, disliking uh, pleasant, unpleasant being aware of our mind uh, the word he uses apamada which is like mindfulness but it has a little nuance as well of um, care not just mindfulness which can be sometimes a little bit uh, mechanical, but it has in it the taste of care, that we care for what we see. Ourselves, our mind, our body, we care. So, and he said, if you are awake and aware to your present moment experience in the now, that is your best place for being an island and being steady in the midst of challenging situations. Another power which is really important in the Dharma is equanimity. And equanimity, balance, um, there's a nice phrase from an author that a hundred year ago author who said, uh, why do angels fly? Because they take themselves so lightly. <laughs> um, we need to take ourselves a bit more lightly. This is central practice in, uh, in the Dharma. It's central. It's fundamental. The sense of being less self-important, full of what I need, what I have to have, what ought to happen, what's better for me, and so on. Those voices, gradually as we practice, get less and less uh, dominant. And slowly, slowly, um, we get less reactive. 
So think about a situation where someone's challenging you and saying, you might, you think you've got this view, but you're totally wrong, and I'm right, and you don't know what you're saying, and, you know, daily life. Um, and it, sometimes it can be very close. It can be our family or someone at work uh, put us down or judging us. Um, th- this is daily life. And... Um, we can see the reactivity that comes so often automatically as defending ourselves. We can see how we are reactive and how we interpret. Oh, they're doing this. Oh, they say that. Oh, uh, they're always doing that to me. Oh, they're not listening to me. Oh, you know, we, we make interpretations and we make labels about the other. I'm not, they're like that, and I don't want to have anything to do with them, and so on. Um, we can see feelings that arise in difficult situations in life, but they don't need to be overwhelming. And equanimity is something we learn, again, by practicing meditation, and by practicing Dharma, and feeling, feeling ourselves a little lighter all the time. Okay, um, I feel... I'm, I have a wound. I'm wounded. Someone insulted me. Someone was angry with me. So there is a bit of a wound, but it doesn't need to be developed. It just comes and goes. It goes away. We don't need to feed it. So there's a skill in that, in not feeding the challenges, in building story around them, and building reactivity and building memory and saying I'm always struggling, I'm always fighting with others I'm always angry with that we don't need to, we can gradually reduce the feeding of those states of reactivity and that's equanimity and we gradually get that Buddha was hugely equanimous um I know this might sound strange, <laughs> but if we have more awareness, we will discover that there's more space inside us. This being has more space. The consciousness has more space. If you can imagine reactivity and busyness and this I need, and this I need, and this I have to do, and this is this, and I, this, and I have no time. And, and, and So there's a contraction. But we can train to be aware, and quietly aware, and then we find more space inside. And when there's more space inside, we can't be hurt. Because there's space, it's like, how can you hurt space? So th- things don't disturb us. Because there's space. There's awareness. It's consciousness. You can't hurt consciousness. It's just awareness. So if we move there in our practice and steadily to develop more consciousness, more presence, uh, we will be training ourselves to be less disturbed in life. Dis- less disturbable.
And when we do that, we can open the view and look at the other person who is giving us a hard time and see our relationship between the two of them, us and them and see where they are coming from and look behind their eyes and allow the compassionate heart in us to grow by itself because we give it more space. That what's the limiting compassion is the self, is contraction. I'm, I'm compassionate but only up to here. <laughs> only, only when I, uh, like I was saying, I can be compassionate if someone close to me cries, but if I hear a cry of my neighbor over on the other side of the road, I just want them to shut up. <laughs> I can't be compassionate there. But, I, but it's actually, uh, um, I challenge, there's, a, there's a, um, an old Jewish, ancient Jewish phrase that said, give to the poor people of your own city first. And I challenge that. Uh, I do use uh, some of the Jewish sources and, and look at them with a Buddhist view. And uh, I say, no, that's a limited compassion. You need to go out all the time to push the boundary of compassion all the time, practicing. Go one more step. So if we see things in re- more in relationship, and if there's more spaciousness in our own inner world, it is easy to go out into the world and make change. Because the... Um, the judging mind, the interfering mind, the disturbing mind that's easily disturbed, the reactive mind and the reactive heart are just not that important anymore. So we can find ourselves, whatever it is you want to do, uh, you could be, um, it could be in your family, it could be at work, it could be uh, saying uncomfortable things to people who don't want to hear it. Yes. But if you have that equanimity and have more space inside, you can do it. And it's their problem, not your problem. (laughs) So, um, with that, um, I have to say that none of us feel we are ready to go out in the world and make change. We all feel, well, if I do a few more retreats and I develop these Buddhist powers, then I can uh, go off and, uh, and, and, and go to meetings or, or, make, or say things to people or challenge views or join groups or go out on ecological campaign or s- stop climate change or you know, work with others. But I'm not ready. I need to be more Buddhist first. And, and I would have to say, we're never ready. <laughs> we just have to start now. There isn't uh, any other. And as we do act, then we develop the skills and the tools as we go along. So, um, in real terms, uh, what do we do with a sense of um, with a sense of oh it's impossible 
It's too big for me. Like in the Palestinian-Israeli dialogues that we did, we made a huge difference to some people, but the war, but the, the, the conflict is just as bad, as I say, or even worse. So was it worth it? Did we fail? And the answer is no. Because the judging mind, we have no idea. The judging mind is the one that says, oh, I didn't, I didn't do enough. I can't do it. This is all too much. But for example, uh, I remember one Palestinian boy uh, that said to us at the end of one of the workshops, uh, I used to feel that the human heart was entirely made of stone. There wasn't any softness in the human heart at all. And that's how I grew up. And now I've met Israelis who are not just soldiers and human beings. I realize there's goodness in the human heart after all. Now that boy will go out and live his life. So we made change at least there. So what I want to say is, in a more profound sense, if we develop tools and skills based on the Dharma, that's all we need to do. Because those tools and skills that we talked about, being less disturb, disturbed, being less reactive, being more equanimous, being steady, being awake and aware in the now, to the, having a compassionate heart, these qualities actually we can trust that they will manifest by themselves. We don't need to say, I have to think out a fantastic strategy to make peace in the world and then I can use all these Buddhist skills that I learnt to go there. But it's the other way around. We just get up in the morning and use the Buddhist skills because they're part of us. And we don't need to think how much change I made. The whole world can indeed be collapsing. It, it, it probably is. <laughs> it's a civilization, it's civilization issue right now. It's not just Trump and it's not just Netanyahu and it's not just Brexit and it's not just... There's a civilization. We're not in charge of that. We're not God. But what we can do is trust the development of different ways of being in our life based on the Buddhist teaching and trust those qualities and then they will manifest in our life in a spontaneous way. We have an argument with someone, our partner at home, uh, our children, whatever. Yes, it happens. Um, but if we trust the qualities of the Dharma in us, then we will express those qualities in every situation. It has to happen. We can't undo them. We can't go back and say, well, I never meditated in my life. It, it happened. We, did, we were on a path. And we learned things. And they are part of our spontaneous life. So we really need to come back down off big plans and projects and so on and just say, all I can do in my life is offer my life and develop the right skills and powers to be able to give to the world. And then the world will have to look after itself. I am not in charge of the world. So I go out in the world, do what I can, and I go home and sleep well at night. <laughs> and really, I think we have to uh, be joyful and change the world.
Not change the world from misery, expectation, frustration, anger. And the way we do that is really seeing how spontaneously we manifest Dharma qualities in our life, in the moment, with our partners and our friends and, and our work and, and our neighbors and the bus driver and the, and, and the, the woman at the, at the supermarket. And um, that, that's spontaneous. So I want to add one more thing that um, is, to me, very deep and very important. We have been given a body. <coughs> Gift. We may not actually like it that much. <laughs> we may say, I wish I hadn't been given a body. Usually we do. and um, we, We're given a body and we live. And we can look at this as dana. Dana is the first of the paramis, the first of the qualities, the enlightened qualities of, uh, of, um, of the Dharma practice, dana. Dana is generosity, is um, giving and receiving, is seeing the world as giving and receiving and flow rather than seeing the world as something that I want to take for myself and put in my pocket more and more. It's a letting go into the flow of giving and receiving. Just like a tree, the leaves fall, the earth picks up the leaves, the roots will take that food, feed the leaves again. You know, there's cycles, the rain, the water. Who's giving whom? Everything is giving everything. And if we understand that, then um, our life, we were given a life and we can give it back as dana. And just, I don't know how much you can sense that, but even if you don't sense it, let it stay there as a kind of insight that you think about later. We actually can't do anything else other than give to others because every word we say is a gift to others every thought we have every action we're always giving and receiving every time we pay something we are actually giving and receiving so money is nothing it's like water it just goes around we can't take it with us it just goes around and everything just goes around water goes around and so if we um, understand that uh, dana the principle of dana um and our life is dana. We give it away. We were given a life. Our mother, you know, gave us a life, and with huge dana, gave us lots of milk and looked after us with a huge dana for many years. And that's what the name of the game. That's life. So we can give our life, and it's very, very joyful. A key is that's what I do with my life. There isn't any point in me to, using my life to store more things and to have more things and to accumulate more money. And it, doesn't, it doesn't satisfy. But the life of giving, you know, the Dalai Lama said uh, one time, 
Um, it's so much more joyful to give to others rather than just to give to yourself because there's more of them. <laughs> it's lovely. So joy, the giving, the sense that we're giving our life to the world is actually a deep source of joy and the pressure to take and to collect and to have more is actually a deep source of pain. So just give who we are. And I don't know, each one of you has opportunities to give and to share and to make change and to help others. And every one of us would, would help a blind man across the road. But much more than that, we would just help others in this life because of dana, because that is a joyful life. It gives inspiration. So, um, in the end, Dana tells us there's really nothing to hold on to. <laughs> we give ourselves away. Whether we like it or we don't, we'll still give ourselves away. And it's best to know that we do that and to enjoy it and to feel really good with uh, helping others in a natural, easy way. And feel really good with developing Dharma qualities and bringing them out in the world in any way we can. Despite all the challenges and, uh, and uh, resistances and non-understandings and all of that. Yes, okay, they all exist. But uh, our actions based on Dharma and our sense of dana that we're giving our life to the world because there's nothing else really that's meaningful to do. Um, is uh, is going to give us so much joy and peace while helping with a compassionate heart uh, everybody else. So thank you, everybody. That's my piece. <laughs> so I want to compliment uh, what Stephen's offered. And in a way, we're really uh, circling around uh, a question. What kind of capacities, uh, Stephen used the word powers, what kind of capacities or powers are really needed at this time for people who can respond to the challenges of our time? The challenges uh, that we know very well about and uh, I'm going to compliment some of what Stephen presented uh, and name some other capacities that really uh, build on these core capacities developed in our practice of, uh, you know, of awareness and uh, autonomy, equanimity, compassion, dana, and so forth. And I think the, the starting point, though, is really having a sense that something is being asked of us right now. I know for myself, uh, there was an intensified sense after the election of 2016 that what many of us thought of to be a normal life 
wasn't quite normal in the same way. Anyone have that sense? <laughs> right, that something was shaken some. You know, and, and for a lot of people, things were already shaken, <laughs> right? And, but there, there, there's a way that it's like we're moving into another period. I think it's a very helpful question to ask, what kind of people are being uh, asked to respond right now? And what kind of training, practice, helps us to respond to the needs of the time, the needs of our time right now? You know, because we know especially that there are these series of systemic issues, very challenging, uh, you know, climate disruption. You know, I learned like about five or six years ago by someone who was working with, I think, Friends of the Earth. And she said, we don't call it climate change around here. We talk about climate disruption. Climate change sounds kind of innocent, doesn't it? You could just, oh yeah, changes, okay, I'll change back. Um, so we have that, we have the various issues by which uh, in our society others are created. You know, that we have uh, the systemic issues around racism or misogyny or creating the other of the immigrant or of people who are Muslim or, and we, you know, that's a lot of these approaches, sexual orientation, age, uh, religion, we probably could go down and name quite a few other things, right? And we have the, um, we have the increased, the vastly increased economic equality. So I don't probably need to name all these issues, right? We know these. And yet, how do we respond uh, to these larger issues while also uh, manifesting just in our everyday lives, right? and bringing the qualities of kindness and care to the people around us, as well as uh, being there for the larger society, for the issues. Um, What just occurred to me is something that, um, not in my notes, but something I think think we need an element of hope. And, And there were studies that were done about 10 or 11 years ago. I forget the author right now. But she studied the history of nonviolent movements in, uh, you know, in the U.S. and various countries, Philippines, probably I think quite a number of countries. And she found that when uh, a movement had uh, at least 2.5 percent of the population involved, it always succeeded every time. Something to contemplate, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, And so the question is, what does the contemporary 2.5%, what kind of training do we need? What what, What kind of tools do we need? And Stephen outlined a lot of the qualities we develop from our meditation practice. Because we need, you know, we need these qualities as... There are the ups and downs as we're with very, you know, potentially more difficult experiences. We need to have that kind of equanimity for the long haul that Stephen was mentioning. We need to have that, right? We need to be not easily knocked off center. 
It's a quality we develop in our practice. We need to have enough mindfulness and awareness to notice negative storylines, negative scenarios. And not just valuable for the world, because obviously we do that all the time for ourselves. Anyone had a negative storyline towards yourself in the last week? Um, I think I did. (laughs) Right? And so, uh, or how can we hold what's happening with compassion? And how can we have that, you know, how can we still have that joy even when things are difficult? You know, one of the, one of the uh, beautiful experiences I had when I was doing research for the, the book and uh, uh, the Engaged Spiritual Life was that I did a lot of interviews with people who were both uh, sort of uh, socially engaged uh, but also had spiritual practices you know, from, from multiple traditions. And uh, one of the qualities that I found was that there was, they, they found ways to stay in touch with joy, even with being with the difficulties. So we need those kind of capacities. You know, and uh, one of the uh, questions I sometimes ask is, that can kind of help energize me, we can look back at other times in history and ask, what would I have done if I was a white person in the South in the 1950s and 60s? Probably most of us would think, oh, I think I would want to really act, right? Or you can imagine other situations, you know, where we, right now, we see a really clear imperative to act, clear moral issues, and we would have said, yeah, I would have wanted to act and do something. How many can relate to that? Maybe looking look into the past, right? And so can we do that now? It's harder always in the present moment. But I think we can sometimes use the past uh, to be helpful. And so I want to complement what Stephen was talking about by pointing to the way that we, there's a way that we can bring together both the inner quality, the more inner qualities that Stephen was identifying, which of course manifest when we act outwardly, with a number of ways that we can also train in tools and skills that help us with the outward action and that complement the, the inner qualities and really maybe complements one word, really um, are ways of expressing those qualities further. And I was thinking that in virtually every spiritual tradition, there's a figure who brings together the inner and the outer. You know, I was thinking of the shaman in indigenous cultures who does deep inner work, but does it all for the community. That's the model in indigenous cultures. Or the Jewish prophets, right? Connected inner practice, but wanting to help, wanting to address injustice for the life of Jesus, for the life of more contemporary people like Gandhi and King or Dorothy Day. And I was also thinking that... um, there's a, a long-standing understanding in the Buddhist tradition of a figure that's very much like this, called the Bodhisattva. How many of you know of the Bodhisattva? So you should know. Those of you who don't, I'll introduce you tonight. Okay. So the Bodhisattva means Bodhi means awakened. Awakened. It's the root for the word Buddha. Bodhi is awakened mind or awakened mind heart. 
And sattva just means being. So this is a being who's dedicated to, we could say, to both awakening and helping others. And I think that's what the model is, I think, is being asked of us right now. Can I dedicate myself to my own awakening, but in the context of helping others, of helping with our world? And then the question is, um, what's the training? You know, what's the training? And traditionally, there was a very uh, elaborate training uh, for the bodhisattva. And it's a little bit different in the different Buddhist traditions. In the Theravada tradition, one would train in developing 10 qualities. The qualities like generosity, being ethical, wisdom, having a lot of energy. Bodhisattvas have to have a lot of energy, right? Having energy, uh, being truthful, uh, kind heart, and the last is equanimity, you know, which is, uh, I, think, I think, my and Stephen's favorite quality. Because is that true? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, but we can ask, those qualities are all crucial. What other trainings do we need in our time? You know, one way I think of it is uh, I've uh, engaged at times in developing training programs. And I've sometimes thought of this as a contemporary bodhisattva school. And I actually had a program at Spirit Rock and I was trying to have it be named the bodhisattva school. You know, and my father was always asking, you know, uh, how's the BS doing? Right. You get it? Okay. <laughs> Okay, how's the BS doing? And uh, well, Spirit Rock didn't like the name so much. They thought it was intruding on, you know, Mahayana territory, which is other schools of Buddhism. Anyway, we named it something else. But what's the contemporary training? And I would say we need that Dharma training in the qualities that uh, Stephen mentioned. And we can, in a way, complement those qualities. And I think part of the creative work of our time is to help develop uh, further ways to have sort of what we call maybe dharmically inspired forms of training that help us with more interpersonal, relational, relational and social dimensions of our lives. So I just want to name some of those and then really... You know, which is really kind of, I think it's like a contemporary curriculum or a curriculum for the contemporary bodhisattva. And I hope, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, my interest especially is in developing these kind of trainings. So look, keep, keep a lookout on the Spirit Rock website or newsletter because it's something, I'm, now is the time, isn't it? Now is the time for this. So I'll just name a few of these and we could actually do a talk on each of, each of these qualities. So remember the ones that Stephen mentioned, you know, the developing awareness, uh, autonomy being an island, uh, qualities of compassion, uh, equanimity, uh, dana, generosity, and joy. And I think that there are other ones that are a little more relational. Uh, so I thought of being skillful in, with group dynamics, being able to work skillfully in groups and organizations. Really, really crucial. You know, how do we do that? How do we... And so that's been important for me. I've sometimes helped do trainings in sort of uh, dharmically-based group dynamics. <laughs> how do you do that? Anyway, it's a whole 
topic. Connected with that is developing skillful speech. How do we have our speech and communication be an extension of our practice of kindness, generosity, and truthfulness? And we have resources both from Buddhist tradition but also contemporary. And again, been an uh, interest of mine in offering retreats on that topic. Um, how do we bring our uh, practice into offering service? You know, many of us uh, work, you know, our contributions will really be in service. And I was thinking of a, a line from uh, Howard Thurman, really uh, African-American theologian, mystic activist, who was asked near the end of his life uh, by a young man, what should I do? And he was an activist. You might have thought he said, well, you know, here are, the, here are four projects. Why don't you do one of those? He didn't say that. He said, this is, listen to this. This is from an activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. All right? And so some of us will contribute to the world doing something that kind of looks like activism. Others, it will be really developing the educational system better or changing medicine, right? Or, or being a yoga teacher who connects the grounding in the body with the connection with the earth body or something like that. It makes the connection. So... Uh, see what helps you come alive. Some of us will be engaged in service. What does our practice look like if we're in service? Uh, others of us, I think another core tool is looking at the world and understanding the social, economic, political, ecological systems through the lens of Dharma. You know, one friend of mine, David Loy, is an author whose books do this probably more than anyone I know. You can look at his work. You know, how do we see the world and not see it through the lens that we're given in the newspapers, but see it with the eyes of Dharma? That's, that would be part of the training that we would, that we would get. Um, knowing some of the dimensions of, uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier, the, the, what we sometimes call diversity work, being trained to be really skillful, knowing how to navigate the, our conditioning and the nature of the social dynamics related to race and gender, you know, religion, sexual orientation, age, so forth, right? How do we navigate those? That's, those are their trainings to do that. How do we, uh, you know, how do we train further in nonviolent action? Deeply, deeply connected with Dharma, you know, same core values and so forth. So this is, this would, these would be some of the trainings which we would go through if we were interested in the BS. Sorry, sorry. Bodhisattva school. Okay. So let me just finish. So this was a sketch, right? We, we tried to, uh, you know, divide our time up and leave time for discussion, which is probably my favorite aspect of taking this role, is talking with you all and seeing where you are. So let me just finish with really two um, short quotations. One of them is from Dorothy Day, the Catholic social activist who developed Catholic Worker. Uh, very inspiring 
figure. I think died about 1980 or so. And this is from a lifelong activist. She will say, you will know your vocation by the joy that it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. So it's listening for that joy that Stephen was talking about. And then the last one, this is a Zen, a Zen teacher. So it's a little bit, what, um, indirect. <laughs> okay, so you have to have your ears for metaphor here. Okay, so... This is Odo Sesho Roshi. This is about the relation of the inner and the outer. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. Little subtle. But you got the point, right? Okay. So thank you so much for your attention. And we have some, have some time now for... Uh, talking together, uh, a nice chunk of time. So please, uh, we have microphones, and I think wait till the microphone comes to use. Uh, maybe, yeah, just to sit and reflect. Is there anything that comes to you you want to ask, reflection, observation, question? Okay. So up front on our right. So, uh, uh, sorry to instructions. Hold the microphone as if you were eating an ice cream cone. Okay. So close. Close. You wouldn't have an ice cream cone too low. Okay. So, in the spirit of dialogue. I would say I get very concerned when I hear some of the messages that were communicated. And what I get mostly concerned about is the idea that the Dharma or awakening communicates a skillful action that can solve problems in the world as if there were sort of a direct line. And what I think about, just as one example, um, would be the situation in Tibet. So here we have a culture that's steeped in awakening, and we have leaders who are deeply compassionate and forward with their compassion, and yet they have been at the hands of a genocide and a displacement for 50, 60 years. And if there were a direct connection it would seem like we would see it there. So it seems to me that we really need to step back and consider what is the role of sort of intelligent practicality and how does that marry to the Dharma? So a little bit more what was said in the second part. But that feeling-driven sense that we can just go and love out situations seems to me to often meet with real-world um, uh, disappointment. Uh, so, um, of course it relates to what I was saying about um, the impossible situation of uh, 100 years of conflict and uh, how we can do our bit, but... The world is a big place. Karma is huge. The Buddha was able to stop two wars 
But two wars he totally failed to stop. And he failed to stop his own people being totally massacred by a local king who just was a little bit offended. <laughs> and um, I think we have to... Uh, we can't really go to that place of expectation that because the Tibetans are Tibetans, they should have done, it, it should be different. I don't think we can go to that place. I think we need um, a sense of a, mu a much more humble place. Firstly, you know, the vast majority of Tibetan people are not necessarily meditators or practitioners or, or they're just ordinary uh, uh, herders and farmers and so on and, and they, they have their lamas and gurus. So I, I think we need to stand back and not to get into expectations that things, because of the Dharma, should be like that. It's beautiful tools and beautiful ways of acting in the world and we apply it in our life. And that's about it. And the world will have to sort of deal with the rest. We can't expect. Uh, look at what happened in uh, Burma, Buddhist country. You know, we, we can't expect because of the Dharma. The Dharma is not ideal, idealization. The, the, the Dharma is not idealization, but it's developing powers and tools and methods and then we just go out in the world and do what's possible and then let go of a measurement in my mind. Yeah, I appreciate the question and uh, we probably could discuss it the rest of the evening, right? And uh, I just had one or two thoughts. Um, um, I, I thought also about uh, Vietnam you know, in uh, Vietnam, uh, there was a very strong engaged Buddhist movement, which we, most of us know about through the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, right? And um, that was very developed. It was probably the most developed uh, engaged Buddhist movement, one of the most of the 20th century. And in a sense, it also did not succeed. And you can read Thich Nhat Hanh has some very eloquent writing about that. He said, you know, uh, he, you know, to summarize, he more or less said the conditions were not such that it would succeed. And we can't, of course, underestimate military power. Right? But he also said that every moment of cultivating care and love is uh, not a loss. Right? And I think of something else that uh, some of you may know Michael Nagler, who was the founder of Peace. Uh, is the founder of Peace and Conflict Studies at UC Berkeley. And he, he wrote a lot, he's written a lot of very good books on nonviolence, and he makes the distinction, and he says that uh, uh, nonviolence always works in the sense of uh, bringing about more care, more love, more connection. It doesn't always work in quotation marks, meaning succeed in its given aims. Although the qualification was that what I was saying about that 2.5%, they found, you know. Um, so those are a few points. And the only other thing I think is that the Dalai Lama has reflected on the way that um, Tibetan Buddhism, in his understanding, was uh, not so focused uh, outwardly in certain ways. And he says he's learned a lot by getting to know some of the social justice traditions more rooted in Jewish and Christian tradition. And he says we actually need all of them. So they may, that might have not been so well developed. 
Yeah, does that make some sense? Yeah. Okay, thanks. So we have one up front and then one in the far back. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about what all of the topics you are talking about, but in the context of, for example, domestic abuse situations. Often women, not just women, but compassionate beings in a codependent type relationship that's a label, but um, are full of caring, are full of love, are full of compassion, have a deep understanding of um, the pain and suffering of their partner, and yet um, have to find some tools to understand when they've... I've heard the term stupid compassion. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Because I'm in the absolute moment. All of these sentiments are wonderful. But when someone is abusing you repeatedly, there's a moment where how much compassion can you extend? And where are the boundaries when... Um, I don't think that uh, any of the tools that we uh, have talked about here that uh, Donald and myself were talking about I don't think any of them are invitations to giving up to being uh, squashed uh, to being trodden on none of them if you think about the slightly more external tools that Donald was talking about slightly more internal tools I was talking about they will empower us to stand our ground like the Buddha said be an island what we do then uh, is we really have to have all those that wisdom and heart especially towards ourselves and say this not and and how do we say this not And I really think that if we are lost in some of the mind states I talked about of helplessness, of failure, of uh, of uh, self judgment, and often it's it's you know the pain in situations like that is the oppressed partner often takes it inside and in a way believes it. I deserve to be squashed. You know, their voices like that, and if those voices can be seen and let go of, then I think there's more chance to say, here's a boundary. Because our, our life, in a way, going out in the world, is about saying, boundary. There has, this, this not. I'm doing something about this. So the, the, my first Buddhist teacher once said, um, the, the Buddhist teaching is about confrontation, but not conflict. It's about being able to stand your ground. So sometimes I would say that we're in an impossible situation and we may not have the tools and we may not have enough mindfulness. And if that's an impossible situation, there's a door. 
<laughs> I don't say we have to put up, because we're Buddhist, we have to put up with an impossible situation in the name of Buddhism. Absolutely not. There is a, but, but we need to know when is the right time. And one of the keys is to be aware so that we know, now I'm off. Now I'm, off. I'm not putting up with this anymore. Just one line uh, to uh, one of the misunderstandings at times of equanimity is that it's passive. But mature equanimity is active and responsive. So, so we, have to, we have to, that's inner work to do that. Yeah. There's a question at the back. Hi, my name's William, and uh, I really appreciate the work you do in Palestine and Israel. It's uh, very inspiring to see you take a nonviolent, peaceful approach to that conflict. I guess in the spirit of confrontation, um, the diversity and inclusion movement that's spreading through America and corporate America and all sorts of organizations has a very toxic, um, abusive kind of strain to it where they, uh, they seem to, there seems to be a movement where uh, they want to suppress certain voices uh, supposedly in favor of lifting up other voices. And I like to hear that there's a dharmic approach to it, and I would like to see more of that. But I do see books like White Fragility gaining a lot of traction. And if you read that, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a case study in, in everything not to do according to like nonviolent communication principles. It's uh, Robin D'Angelo tends to pathologize disagreement and um, be very kind of dismissive of people who have legitimate feelings and reactions and um, responses to her way of seeing things. So I guess that's a comment, and I'm interested in how a dharmic approach to diversity and inclusion could be less toxic and be more uplifting and actually serve its purpose to include people. That's a, a small question. <laughs> and again, we could uh, take the rest of the evening, if not uh, the rest of the year, on, on that theme. And this, I appreciate the question. It's something that's been important for me also. Uh, to contemplate. And I think that there's a, uh, a process that's still very much occurring at Spirit Rock and elsewhere to explore what that integration of a dharmic approach to what we call diversity looks like. And I think it's still very much information. Um, I'm very aware from having uh, spent a lot of years uh, in what we would call engaged practice that it did take, you know, the book that I have out there 
that was the fruit of 15 years of work. You know, and it took years and years to sort of, you know, through groups, through trainings, through relationships to integrate the uh, sort of the, the best of the Western social justice tradition, for example, with Dharmic principles. Not easy. It takes time. So I think we're at a young stage in that process. And we have just, we just have probably the, one of the first books just came out. Uh, some of you know Ruth King's book, Mindful of Race, which is in the bookstore. It just came out. And I think it's, uh, it's from, from the point of view of uh, maybe of compassion, it's understandable that where there's been pain, there may tend to be reactivity. Right? And I think some of what you're calling toxic may be the expression of reactivity, you know, that comes out of you know, un, not fully processed pain, and there's a lot of pain there. So I think we have to give some, maybe some, uh, what, uh, maybe some understanding of some of what, why what, what sometimes looks like it's more reactive or narrow or something is happening. You know, there is a, there can be a shadow side to diversity work. You know, that, that is the case, I think. And so it really is a question of how we design a process that, you know, and people are very much trying to do that at Spirit Rock. There, you know, you look on the website, there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, program that is a very strong commitment to it. Um, but I, th- I think I'm uh, counseling a certain degree of patience because it, it, it does take, uh, there is a process. And I think dharmic principles are, could be very valuable brought into that uh, into that field. Um, so that's a little general. It feel, that feels a little general, but maybe the question was general. So hope that's a start. It's just to acknowledge that there are issues. It's young, and uh, there can be uh, there can be reactivity. I think the vision, certainly, in Buddhist practice, is very similar. I you know I, I've taught. Uh, some retreats where we brought together dharmic practices and the nonviolence of King and Gandhi. And I think if you look, I think there are a lot of parallels that we have with King. The vision is that of reconciliation, the beloved community where everyone has a voice, right? And I think, I think that's very similar to the dharmic intention of uh, universal compassion and understanding. How does that guide this concrete work that needs to be developed better. I hope that is a start. Yeah, thanks. Actually, that was that kind of takes us to our time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, do you have a word on that? I just want to say one word because, if you don't mind uh, me coming from a slightly more radical place, the Dharma would invite a radical question, which is, what is a human being? And how do I look at a human being straight in the eyes and see a human being is a huge, huge being. And so the contractions around, in our case, Israeli-Palestinian, in your case, diversity, we have to also see that the contractions there. And that we, never, we will actually never get it right. And somewhere or other we need to challenge 
what is a human being. And the Dharma is very deep in that. Uh, the bigness and the undefinability of a human being. When the Buddha was asked how you define an enlightened person, he said you define an enlightened person because you can't find him or her. <laughs> so we have to really allow a human being to be much bigger than all the labels and all. The, but that doesn't go in contrast to what Donald was saying and you were saying. I, in the real world, there is this and then there is that as well. Um, uh, just a final word um, about myself. Um, my book is really about these kind of things we're talking about. It's about the view of the Dharma, how it works in daily life. If we have an awakened point of view, what happens to our daily life in all kinds of situations and how we develop the Dharma view, a deeper view, an awakened view uh, and uh, how it, and it goes all the way to a kind of more liber a liberation. So the book is really about the sorts of things we're talking tonight and also I have some leaflets uh, about online teaching that online school that I just started including one course on the ten paramis the qualities that uh, Donald was talking about of the Bodhisattva in the Theravada well also in the Mahayana tradition so there's a whole course on that uh, so you're welcome to take a leaflet and um, I just wanted to say that yeah. a, a word about my book Thanks, Stephen. Um, I think we'll be here for a little while to talk further if you like. I uh, just want to finish with uh, just two very brief pieces. One is, let me just invite you to go within for a moment and see what may have been most helpful or valuable from the evening, maybe from the talks, the discussion, or maybe something that just came independently in your sitting, what was most helpful from the evening? Something that maybe that you want to take further? And then we close in a traditional way, uh, if you feel comfortable. Traditionally, people brought their hands together like this, don't have to. Um, dedication of merit is remembering that we do this, of course, very much for ourselves, but also very much for others. We, we cultivate these qualities to benefit ourselves, to benefit those in the circles of our lives, but then we remember also that our ultimate horizon is to benefit all beings, which includes us. So thank you and may, uh, may our discussions, dialogues and inquiries continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.